0: It's Stan Grant here on RN and your pod. Some of you may be familiar with the film Get Out, a popular film a few years back, a modern-day horror movie where the bodies of black people are stolen and their souls removed. It was witty and incisive, and for African-American philosopher Lewis Gordon is an allegory for race and what he calls the fear of black consciousness. It means, he says, that we continually fail to deal with the legacy of our history and address questions like the place for guilt. Lewis Gordon, it's a pleasure to have you on the Religion and Ethics Report.
1: It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Is a sense of collective guilt for the past a useful thing or is it an unfair burden to place on people
1: today? It's a two-edged sword. On the one hand, any human being who has no sense of responsibility for the past would be an irresponsible human being. One of the things I often say in my lectures is that I usually honor ancestors. When I was in Australia, for instance, and not only in Australia, anywhere I speak, I take Mm. my shoes off as an act of establishing a sacred space because truth is sacred. But the point about ancestors is you cannot make sense as an ancestor if you don't have descendants. And so, when we are acknowledging, carrying the the torch, so to speak, of ancestry, we're acknowledging an obligation not simply to the past, but to the future, because descendants would require us becoming ancestors. Now, a big danger is there are some people who want to escape all responsibility. So, they don't want to be responsible to the past. They don't want ancestors. But at the same time, they don't want to be responsible for the future. So, they don't want descendants. Now, when I say ancestors and descendants, I don't only mean people, mm. I mean life itself. Uh, uh, and so the people who then try to abdicate that responsibility, they then have the awful conclusion that they think their death is the end of the world. And how do you reason with people who see themselves as having ultimately obligation to no one but themselves?
0: People today may accept a sense of responsibility for the past, but but their argument, Lewis, is that Guilt is too onerous. They weren't responsible directly. The sins of the father, if you like, cannot be visited upon the sons.
1: And that's why I said it's a double-edged sword. On the one hand, although there is the question of responsibility, guilt is different. As we know, there there are a lot of studies of guilt, not only in psychoanalysis, but just on a basic level. The problem with guilt is that guilt always has a sense of debt that makes the guilty party ultimately as weird as it sounds, not want to be forgiven. Because you see, to forgive the guilty party makes the guilty party in even a greater debt. So this is one of the reasons why I argue that in stream with someone like Natalie Etoke in her book, uh, Melancholy Africana, she points out that there is a different kind of giving that we need. But what you're pointing to is something I talk about in the book. I'm very critical of moralism.
0: Mm.
1: What moralism does is to make guilt its objective. And the problem is all someone could say when guilt becomes the objective is simply to say, I feel bad. But the problem is simply making people feel bad doesn't change the world. So you want a political
0: action rather than just a
1: moral response. Correct. Moralism is reductive. Moralism seeks a kind of purging, a kind of purity, and it also leads to something perverse. Because the way I could put it in the American context, but it's globally, the issue for me is not that there are racist people in the world or people who are descendants of racist people and colonial people. The issue for me is if we have power relations, then put them on my neck. And to say they're on your neck in the U.S. context is no small statement. Mm. But once you take them off your neck, the issue now— once I'm I'm liberated from that, is how we're going to work as a community to create new conditions in which people are not stepping on people's necks but are working together to make a better world. But if you're a moralist, you, obs- you obsess over moralism, you're not going to devote yourself to that political task. You're going to be obsessing over the fact that those people whom you consider immoral are still in the world. Mm. When the real issue is not that they're ultimately people we don't like, or even that they're unethical. The issue is whether they have power. So if we change how we structure power in the world, then the ultimate enemy of all racism and dehumanization will come to the fore, and that is their eventual irrelevance.
0: You you say in the book, too many whites' sense of a political guilt creates a crisis, which turns the question of fighting against racism into a topic that is all about them. It's almost an inverse victimization, isn't it, that people who are responsible for that power or inheriting that power, when challenged by that, see it as an attack on them.
1: Absolutely. And what I do in the book is to link racism to what it's at its core, which is an attack against humanity. And that is why it is linked to many other things, because we see this with sexism, too. When we talk about sexism, there are men who personalize it. And they're instead of trying to work with women and work with other men to get rid of sexism, they're just obsessed with whether they individually are sexist. When that's not the point. The point is to deal with sexism. Similarly, the point is to deal with racism. Similarly, the point is to deal with colonialism. And we could deal with a lot of the isms all the way through to classism.
0: What we often hear is that all this talk of race or critical race theory really gets in the way of the colorblind or the the, the raceless society we should be aiming for. People often quote Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. It is not about the color of my skin, but the content of my character. It's about a liberalism that is beyond race. They say to even talk about race just continues to get in the way of the progress that we need. What
1: do you say to that? I say that's pure bad faith. In fact, I have an entire chapter on the colorblind argument. I could give an analogy. If a man and a woman go on a date and everything's going fine, and at the end of the date, the man says to the woman, you know what, I really like you, but I could respect you if I could stop seeing you as a woman. The conclusion is he's a misogynist because he lacks the capacity to respect women qua women. If the argument is to stop seeing black people in order to respect us, that is actually an affirmation of anti-black racism. The real issue is why cannot such people respect black people as people? And here's the thing, it doesn't mean that black people as people should be looked at reductively. There are many ways, and that black people could live our lives, it's always in relationship to many people. But the crucial issue is to understand that when we're looking at the deeper humanity of people, those people should not be looked at as closed. Mm -hmm. They should be looked at as possibility. And who knows? I mean, look, in the future, there may be different ways of thinking of black people. There may be even a future in which we're not even using the term white, black, or brown. But the presupposition that erasure is the solution, that is part of the historical, ethnocidal, genocidal, and arrogant mentality that does not actually accept or encourage or embrace the dignity and freedom of people who are different
0: and and isn't that though the the crux of the issue with political liberalism and its inheritance of structures of power let me give you an example in australia of course there is a big debate about how to acknowledge indigenous peoples in the australian constitution there has been a big debate around questions of extant Aboriginal sovereignty, and to the extent that that exists and can still be recognized. And the argument against it is but you are putting race in the constitution, you are creating two races, two classes of people. That liberalism should not be about that, it should be about the individual. How can we square off the legacy of history, inherent power structures, racism and race, and liberalism's dream of the rights of the individual beyond? those things?
1: Well there's several things. The first one is to remember that racism and colonialism are always about the perpetuation of lies. Ultimately it requires looking at a human being and then denying the humanity of that human being. In other words, to identify them and ultimately claim ultimately that they're not human. Now here's the thing the problem with liberalism, political liberalism, is precisely It's FUPA notion of individualism. And that is because it creates a way of speaking that doesn't address a de facto problem. I've never, ever, ever been discriminated against, specifically as Lewis Gordon. I've been hated if an individual doesn't like me. But when people don't know me, they see me either as Black or as Jewish or as Tamil, And the list goes on. If it's as queer... That's what they would see. If we're talking about indigenous people of Australia, there are people who are gonna discriminate against them without it being personally or individually them. The problem with liberalism is that it lacks the conceptual tools with which to deal with racism. Because ultimately, it lacks also the conceptual tool with which to deal with sexism. We have to understand that these are problems that pertain to groups. But we should bear in mind that there's not only liberalism, there's this other twist conservatism, particularly neoconservatism, does recognize groups, it's just that it collapses into a racism that just says, oh, we recognize groups, it's just that those groups are inferior. So it puts its racism on the Mm. table. But the thing about that logic as well is that it inevitably slides into fascism, because it ultimately is at war with the notion of difference. However, we need to understand that it's a false dilemma, that it's between liberalism and nothing else. In other words, we need to understand that there are many layers. And if we're going to recognize the reality of groups, we need to enrich our Mm. conversation. For instance, I argue against nation states, but I don't argue against nations. And there has to be a way to recognize nations without collapsing into the kind of logic Mm. that we see with nation states.
0: Lewis Gordon, let's go back to the whole idea of the construction of blackness and black consciousness and whiteness itself. And This is a religion and ethics program, so let's go to the religious roots of this. You talk about the curse of Ham, the son of Noah, and how that takes root with the spread of Christendom as well in defining people as black. How?
1: Well, it's interesting. The story about the curse of Ham is very mythic, and it was not initially about race, But the situation with Christianity was the construction of Christendom. And within Christianity, there was a specific form. There were different kinds of Christianities. There's, for instance, Coptic Christianity, there's Persian Christianity, etc. But Iberian Christianity was a Christianity that imagined what, in theological terms, is a theodicy. And what a theodicy basically means is that God is ultimately all-powerful, all-good, which means all evil is external to God. And if that is the case, that means that anybody who's not within the eyes of God is unnatural. And that's called theonaturalism.
0: And so blackness becomes unnatural as Christendom becomes more associated with the spread of European society and culture.
1: Well, it began first by saying actually Jews and Moors who are Afro-Muslims. It didn't really make the shift into blackness specifically until there was an encounter with people who were neither Christian, Jewish, or Muslim. And within that framework, uh, what I argue is that we have a tendency to want to find a one size that fits all, a kind of reductive singular element. But I, I argue that we need to think in terms of what could be considered confluences, the way many elements meet, but they have something in common. So with Christendom, it's the idea that there's one God that only looks at people as Christian, but then it slid into the notion of it's connected to whiteness. And it slid into the notion that it's connected to a notion of a group of people in the eyes of God who deserve to have everything. And what I bring up often is that if you were to have a child and tell your child that child is to have everything— that anything that does not support that view, you're going to raise that child into becoming a schmuck. You're going to create a person who believes in a form of malignant narcissism that says that any moment that individual or that child doesn't get what she or he or they want, that's an injustice in the world. But that maps onto theodicy. And what happened is in Euro-modern colonialism, what people don't understand is that the people we call white didn't start as white.
0: And indeed, mapping our DNA has revealed this, and you talk about this in the book, that the people we see as white, who are an invented idea of whiteness, are not pure. None of us are. We are all the sum of our ancestors' parts, if you like.
1: Yeah, there's no such thing as a pure human being. In fact, every human being walks around with ghost DNA of different hominins. There.
0: And yet race is real, isn't it? It is a social construct, but it has real consequence.
1: That's right. One of the things is we have to understand is human beings live in a human world, but a human world is not a world the way we think of a rock or a stone. A human world is a world of meaning, and meaning can function like a rock or a stone or a wall. The laws, the mores, the way we live our lives, that sets both possibility and limitations on us. And what we do with racism is to structure our world in such a way that we lie to ourselves that it is ultimately the way things must be. In philosophical terms, it's called ontological, but Mm. it just means absolute. But what we do is when we remember we're not God's. And in fact, that's a fundamental thing that's lost because, you see, there's something profoundly idolatrous about racism because it constructs a group of people with the hubris to function like gods. But when we remember our humanity, we understand that we are not perfect, but we ultimately depend on and live through a human world. What racism does is to dehumanize that world, to separate many of us from that world and lie to ourselves That we can live absolutely independent of each other and the rest follows
0: now in response to racism we see the development of a black consciousness now you you define these things very specifically you talk about a capital b black
1: consciousness and a lowercase b black consciousness what is the difference the lowercase b black consciousness is the consciousness of a view of blackness that's forced upon any group of people designated black. And that forced view usually has the form of the negative. In other words, all the stereotypes from criminality to endemic poverty to intellectual weakness, etc. However, every black person lives with the reality of her, his or their humanity. We don't get up in the morning saying, oh, my God, I'm still black. We get up in the morning thinking about our loved ones, the food we love to eat, the music we love to listen to. Is that the capital B, black consciousness? No, that's not the capital B yet. That's, That's there. That's what begins to awaken the capital B. Because, you see, the first one is when we see ourselves as problems in the world. But when we realize that there's something wrong with the world that makes us into problems instead of addressing us as human beings who face problems, now we have potential. And that is the move from what's called double consciousness, that's the first one, Mm -hmm. the lowercase b, to potential. The first one says you have no possibility, no future. The world is better without you. That's it. But once you see you have potential, then you say, wait a minute. Perhaps if we do the political work of changing our society, We can unleash our potential, and that's the capital B, black consciousness. That makes you an agent of history, and because you're not closed, you have now the possibility to deal with what are fundamentally and globally human problems.
0: So how do we use that possibility? I'm reminded just listening to you about James Baldwin, who said that it was impossible for a black person to be conscious in the world without being filled with a sense of rage, what do you do with that in a productive way that does not continue the power struggles, if you like, or the, 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 the power structures of the past?
1: Well, that's why I link political action to radical love. There are different types of rage. There is rage that's premised on hate. The problem with hate is it's destructive. It's easier, too. It's what you could destroy. It's like what I say to my son when I was giving him a driving lesson. As I was going down a street, I said, you know, it took a lot of people to build the homes on this street, but it takes one schmuck to tear it all down. It's easier to have hate, but love requires community, collective action, political action. So the answer I would say is the healthy rage is the rage against dehumanization and injustice, because implicit in that rage is a profound love for the possibility and growth of humanity.
0: You've spoken about the dangers of being overly moralistic and not seeing a political response. Is there a risk as well in the response, the black response or the indigenous response to racism and to white structures of power to also fall prey to becoming overly moralistic, to closing things down, to seeing things in terms of enemies, permanent enemies. You've criticized the black body motif that sees people as being disembodied in the world. Is there a danger of reductive blackness in the struggle against whiteness?
1: Absolutely. In fact, there's a seduction out there that attracts certain group of intellectuals, some groups of black artists and others to reductive blackness because it's easier and it gives them a sense of control. But it is a form of moralism. And it is also a lie. It's a lie that elides our humanity. The truth of the matter is human beings are not really things like beings. Human beings should be understood more as verbs, as activity, as relationships, and one of the things about relationships is they're more difficult to build. But the thing about relationships is that they produce the form of meaning through which we actually live as human beings. So, it, one of the things I do in the book, and I've done in my work throughout my career, and it surprises many people, is I make a distinction between white supremacy and anti black racism. You can get rid of white supremacy and maintain anti black racism. But if you address anti black racism, it means you also have to address Just the basic truth, which is that for every group you can think of, they are members of a group who may hate their own group. And in some cases, it's not hate in the form of an active aggression. It also could be hate in the form of a lie that erases the humanity of that group through romanticization, through exoticization, et cetera. So yes, there is a danger of internal black moralism that undermines our political potential.
0: One of the things you point out in the book is that even those racists who may despise black people, in fact, seek the black body. Um, You talk about the film Get Out, inhabiting black bodies that are devoid of a black consciousness. In what ways does racism actually, in its own way, fetishize or is attracted to the idea of the control of the black body?
1: Well, in a way, the very formulation of the question you just had answers it. And I could add to that, you know, I could put it in another context. If a man gets up every day and tells you that he does not like a certain woman and he just keep and he walks up to her and he says, I really don't like you. You're such a harp." after a while, everybody turns and say, you know, you're a little obsessed over Mary. I think you're attracted to Mary. I think you love Mary. There's so much energy devoted in white literature, to claiming the impossibility of attraction to black people, of respect for black people. And when with that much energy, we know there's a lie. And I see the movie Get Out as an allegory about that. The truth is, it's it, a lot of white people find black people actually very beautiful. But it creates a profound level of anxiety because in that connection to the beauty, to the possibilities, in fact, most music that white people listen to is black music. What that does is challenge the injustice of creating a situation of ongoing suffering from people who produce such joy in the world. So yes, the problem, of course, is fetishization. What some people would like to see is ultimately in a black body, a white consciousness looking back. Which
0: is, which is the film Get Out, and it leads me to this observation. Is that what Barack Obama represented? Was he, in fact, the black (laughs) body with the white consciousness? Did he have to stop being black or be appealingly or acceptably black just to be elected? Was he, in fact, the get-out president?
1: Well, this is a very controversial issue. If you look at Obama's presidency, he kept using moralistic language. And if you looked at him strategically, why did he write a second biography in which he was ultimately making a testimony about his Christianity? Part of that is because the reality is Obama was a neoliberal president. He was a president under neoliberalism, which individualized him and really wanted him to be a moral, not a political figure, which is an absurdity because he was a politician.
0: And then he would say things like there is no white America, there is no black America, there is just America, there is no red states or blue states, there is just the United States, erasing using the the colorblind language or the classless language, um, erasing those fractures, those fissures in society.
1: And those were false statements. As I said, anti-Black racism is a lie. This fear of Black consciousness is that if in that Black body there's a Black consciousness looking back, what is it looking at? Well, in those eyes is truth. And it's not an exoticized truth because I've I've pointed out that lowercase b black consciousness can lie to itself. The truth of black consciousness is about the truth of a humanity that needs to get its stuff together. Could
0: he have ever been elected U.S. president with a capital B black consciousness?
1: I don't think so. But that's a different issue. There are other problems in the United States. The United States, for instance, is putting too much investment in presidents you know the united states has a lot of problems among them is i would argue it has a kind of father complex how many countries are obsessed with talking about founding fathers and within that framework the obsession psychoanalytically is to have fathers so much that it becomes irrelevant to many americans whether it's a loving father like a bernie sanders or a father of hate and abuse like a donald trump both are fathers when in fact, one has to transcend that and begin to think about the complexity and the possibility of what it is to have mothers, fathers, parents, etc.
0: And I suppose that the final thought to finish on is that while we talk about power structures, while we talk about radical love, while you talk about a multi-dimensional approach to this that looks beyond race, we live in such a racialized world, we live with the world that we have created What is a way of getting there? What can we do to bring about the sort of future
1: that you're you're talking about? Well, this is one of the reasons why in the book I talk about uh, existential political commitment because I, I give many examples of people whose actions in their lifetime they thought didn't matter but were necessary conditions for the positive things we live today. And this is crucial because the mistake we make when we think of ourselves as gods is we think about one individual or one set of actions alone when we need all hands on deck. We need to have every dimension of what we are as a species to be mobilized to this question of building a better future. And this means transforming our institutions. It means working creatively to go beyond this nation state model, because at the end of the day, we cannot deal with what's happening to our climate conditions, our environmental conditions, when there are nation states who will just step out of it. We need to start the task of building a new humanity and new concepts. And here's the thing. It won't happen simply in one generation, but as mm-hmm. Frantz Fanon said beautifully, every generation has its mission. All we need to do, each of us, is to do our part.
0: Lewis Gordon, American philosopher at the University of Connecticut. And that's our program for this week. Of course, you can catch up with us on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again to our team, Murata Hong Jung, and Simon Branthwaite. I'm Stan Grant. I'll see you again next week on the Religion and Ethics Report. Stream any ABC radio station live and on the go. Discover new podcasts, music, and audiobooks, all free on the ABC Listen app.